Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. For 10 years, Kelly Witham serves as executive director of Venture Lidditz, the economic development agency that drove that town's successful redevelopment. She helped revitalize Lidditz's downtown corridor by attracting locally owned restaurants and retailers, as well as helping to organize events like Rock Lidditz Bike Race and the Lidditz Beer Fest. Earlier this year, Witham was hired by Lebanon's Neighborhood Improvement District to help to redevelop the downtown and revitalize Lebanon's economy. Joining us to discuss the successful redevelopment in Lidditz and downtowns overall is Kelly Witham. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. If you have a question or a comment uh, talking about uh, what you think works in a downtown area, what you'd like to see, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so what's the key to a successful downtown? Um, If I had to say what was the one key, that is for people in the community to actually come downtown and to go to the shops, go to the pubs. If there isn't shops and pubs, there's got to be a coffee shop or something that if everybody in a community would take a friend and go to a coffee shop, you've just infused a tremendous amount of money into that downtown in one day. You know, for people who work in a traditional downtown to come out for lunch, to come out and instead of getting back in their car and driving home or stopping off at the at the mall to pick up a birthday present, look to their downtown for those types of of opportunities, because the more that we you know, participate in our downtowns, the more successful those downtowns will be. So basically what you're saying is the residents of a community, uh, what one of the keys or one of the most important is support for that downtown area. Correct. Correct. And to use their downtown. I mean, downtowns are the traditional downtowns throughout our state are, are really amazing and they offer very, very unique experiences. Um, and I think in, in in this day and age, because everything is sort of getting muddled and things like that, that we are all starting to really look for those unique experiences. And, you know, if you go into a tr- traditional downtown, you're experiencing um, architecture that often is several hundred years old. And to me, that architecture represents collective memory. It is the physical embodiment of collective memory of a particular community. And and that each community has its own unique story and and, um, and then as they evolve throughout, you know, the centuries, the decades, whatever, that that, you know, if we need that to capture and to maintain those unique stories and that unique experience that our downtowns have to offer. But isn't what you're describing kind of uh, the old chicken or the egg? I mean, there has to be something downtown to bring those community members, those residents there. Correct. There does. And um, I have to say, cross board, I don't think there is a downtown in our entire state that doesn't own a coffee shop. You know, so let's start with the coffee shop. You know, let's all pile into the coffee shop. And then... People attract people, so 
Now, I'm seeing this bustling little coffee shop, and if I'm thinking about starting a business, I might want to put it in to that empty building right next to that coffee shop because I'm seeing these people. And, um, you know, and if I drive by and I see a lot of people outside of this coffee shop waiting to get in to get their coffee because it's the only game in town, then I'm going to stop. And I'm probably going to go to that coffee shop, too, because they know something I don't know, you know. And I mean, it's, believe it or not, it's slow and it's oversimplified, but, um, you know, it's contagious on some level. It can be contagious if it's managed correctly. And that is a huge oversimplification of it. But, you know, it is, I mean, people do attract people. In fact, there are very famous people that have um, put their careers on it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, William Wright, uh, he does. A, he did a lot. Of, he was a social anthropologist, did a lot of studying about squares and public places and things like that. And what is it that attracts people? And the bottom line is people, you know, and... Um, you know, so we need to get more people into our downtowns to keep them vibrant. Where did you start in Lidditz? I mean, was there that coffee shop or were there multiple locations? Um, well, I have to say in Lidditz, um, that was more of vitalization than revitalization. There were not, there were a few empty storefronts, but not a tremendous amount. Um you know, I had the good fortune. I had been in, in Lancaster City for a couple of years and then moved to, to Lidditz. And um, Lidditz did not have a tremendous amount of, of blight or um, vacancies. There were some, and you need some, actually, to, to be able to work. Um, but... Um, where did it start? Well, that's hard to say uh, because you don't start at any one point. You, it's there's a lot of things that you have to put in place to work simultaneously. You're looking at big picture. Yeah, yeah. I know in Lebanon now. I've only been there for two weeks now, and I'm very, very excited because it it's a um, it's a it's a city of third class, a little different than a borough. Um, has great bones. It has great architecture. Everyone I have met is very welcoming. A lot of very supportive agencies. This is the skeleton. This is what you need to get started. And um, so there are several things that I'm going to start with. One, I'm not terribly um, informed about Lebanon, even though I've done a lot of reading about it. But I want to learn and to develop um, camaraderie, community, enthusiasm through storytelling. I want to invite uh, small groups of people, all different ages, to tell the story of what Lebanon means to them. And through that, one, I will learn. Two, I will see common threads that will be important for doing any kind of strategic planning. And, and three, it will give me the opportunity to, to show them this is what it was and this is what it can be. It's not going to be the same, but it can be as vibrant. It can be as 
exciting and fun. I imagine it's not one size fits all, but I can see the advantages of a fresh set of eyes seeing a downtown, not necessarily for the first time, but someone who doesn't see that downtown on an everyday basis or who grew up there because there are a lot of assumptions. Yes. But someone with a fresh set of eyes can come in and say, oh, look at that. Oh, I, I, in fact, I've heard I've heard mayors and people from other cities say, oh, I wish I had that downtown because here's what I'd do with it. Right. Do you, right. Do you look at it that way? Yes. Too? Yes. And, and I do believe, um, especially in, in in this area of Pennsylvania, sometimes, you know, if your family wasn't from here for generations, that you're an outsider. But Sometimes, because your family was here for generations, you are pre predisposed to certain ideas. So bringing an outsider in, somebody who does have fresh eyes, and uh, not necessarily fresh ideas, because I don't want to remake a town. I want to take what they already have and make it blossom. And, um, you know, it, it. a lot of towns, I believe, and this, again, is oversimplification, but... It's it's an analogy. Suffer from poor self-esteem. Something has occurred in its history. More often than not, it's a loss of industry. And it's also suburban sprawl. But so now, you know, things have moved away. The way they feel about their town isn't um, as proud as what it had been. And so then they're no longer caring so much how it looks and, you know. So it's a matter of, you know, let's let's build that self-esteem back up again. Let's let's start pointing out what are those assets that are so important and and build off of that. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Let's take a phone call from Tom in Harrisburg. Tom, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, good morning. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, what a typical uh, rundown downtown area uh, looks like in terms of if they had like an anchor store uh, that went out of business, what the downtown used to be, as well as how do you judge the value of what you can get out of that downtown area? All right. Thank you very much for your call. Yeah, Tom, we didn't have a very good connection, but I think it's general questions. What does a rundown downtown look like? Um, usually a rundown downtown uh, will have sporadic businesses. Um, it will have um, boarded up businesses. Uh, usually there is a um, tremendous amount of litter. Um, there is the one thing that is actually on some level I see as an asset is usually very inexpensive rents, um, which in some communities, they don't like because it attracts it attracts businesses they may not feel is appropriate for their downtown. Um, I see it as an opportunity for aspiring young entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs who, in fact, do not have the mo a lot of money to really capitalize their startup, but um, having a inexpensive you know place to rent. Um, gives them the opportunity to jumpstart their, their business. So, But it's somebody guiding it. I've seen more and more of that, that uh, uh, 
you didn't used to hear a whole lot about uh, residential. It was almost entirely focused on business and reason to attract people to visit downtown. But York, for example, is one a city that and I don't know how familiar you are with downtown York, that uh, you know refurbishing some old buildings into apartments and mm-hmm. uh, people moving in. So that and you know and and we do hear. I don't know whether there are statistics to back it up or not, but we do hear about younger people moving back into urban areas, back into cities. And again, I don't know whether that's anecdotal or if there are statistics to back that up. There are hard numbers. I'm not a real number person. I I depend on other people to keep those. (laughs) I'm an idea person. Um, The other group that is moving back to urban settings are empty nesters. You know, the family's gone. Uh, They don't want the big suburban home anymore. They want a simpler life where they can go out and enjoy you know, after work or in their retirement, they can, you know, pop out, walk two blocks, go to the pub, uh, meet their friends, whatever. So um, there are those two groups that, that really are seriously looking back at the uh, urban settings. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Kelly Witham, Executive Director of Lebanon's Neighborhood Improvement District Management Association. She has experience with uh, Lidditz in Lancaster County, also the city of Lancaster. If you have a question about improving downtowns, making them a destination, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that is 1 800 729 7532. All right, you mentioned the word when we were talking about silver bullet. Uh, I'm right. sure there are people out there saying, okay, okay, what, what are the secrets? What are the keys to a downtown area's improvement or success? What is the silver bullet? Well, I mean, the one and only silver bullet is the community. You know, again, the community must embrace their downtown and come down and participate in their downtown. Um, as uh, a member of the Pennsylvania Downtown Center, which I give a huge shout out, they're very supportive of all of us working in, in traditional downtowns. Uh, and when we have uh, our, our, our regular meetings, we, we sit and talk about this, and several of us have concluded that the silver bullet in traditional downtowns is craft beer. And, and and it's not quite that simple because it is a greater thing. And the greater thing is the fact that it is the one thing that seems to be attracting young people and, and again, empty nesters. They, they, that, that seems to be a really popular sustainable trend. I mean, it's been going on for, you know, at least a decade. But what it is, what the bottom line is, what it really is the silver bullet, is that people are coming together. They're gathering in a particular place in their downtown to share stories, to share, you know, um, political, you know, insight. You can't help that today. <laughs> no, no. Um, but, but they're there. And, and in our business, it's called creating a third place. And it's, a, it's not your workplace, it's not where you live, it's where you go and you socialize. And those third places are paramount in a downtown, you know, where people come together and 
tell their stories, tell their day-to-day, you know, viewpoints. Their, um, you know, talk about the kids, complain about the wife or the husband, you know, whatever it is that they do when they go to these places. But those those places are so important. You know, it doesn't have to be a pub with craft beer. It could be the coffee shop, or it could be the farmers market, or or whatever. But it, those par- places are paramount in in downtown. Success. I have to say, you you surprised me. I I don't think I would have guessed that. But now that you mention it. And I think about so many uh, of these traditional downtowns that are successful. There's a craft brewery or, uh, you know, a place, a pub that does sell multiple craft beers in almost every single one of them. Yes. And and the new trend that you're going to see, if you haven't already seen it, is the the small batch uh, distilleries that are popping up. And they, I have a feeling, will be just as popular as as the the brew pubs were or huh. are. You know. All right, before we take more phone calls, a couple questions I do want to make sure to ask you. Uh, I, I think about traditional downtowns when I was young. That uh, you know that's where everyone shopped. There were multiple department stores. Uh, there were businesses that were had you know sold men's clothing, women's clothing. Uh, you know, especially stores, hardware stores, all those things. Are those things ever going to come back? Um, and that's a tough question. Uh, it, you know, everything that I'm reading nowadays, traditional retail is going by the wayside. Um, you know, we're all shopping online, uh, you know, but the one thing a traditional downtown can sell is an experience. This is something that I don't feel that a mall can can give you. You know, a traditional downtown, you know, I mean, you really need to, um, if possible, uh, get niche shops um, that, that actually will make people come and still shop, physically shop. Um, and that's what you did with Linnets. Lynch has yes, a we lot did, of jewelry. We books. did work. We did work hard with that. Um, when I st- I started in two thousand seven in Lidditz, and as we all know, we went into the Great Recession in two thousand eight, and Lidditz did not uh, go down. Actually, it started going up, and that was a matter of understanding trends, and one sustainable trend is food. We all eat, we all drink, we all, you know, not all of us, but some of us like to cook and so forth and so on. So I, I, you know, looked at this and really thought about it and, and Lidditz already had the bones. I mean, we had two attractions. We had, there was Wilbur Chocolate and there was Sturgis Pretzel. So how do we build on that? You know, um, the same with Lebanon. You know, there's there's some of that. There are food items in, in Lebanon that, that, you know, I'm hoping to capitalize on. And um, but then it was a matter of, of very mindfully uh, attracting other food businesses, you know, craft beer pubs, um, gourmet shops, um, things like that, that that had staying powder, that still attracted people, even though 
uh, during the recession, people weren't spending like they used to. They still were spending in very niche, specialized ways, and food always came up in those spending. So, what, a, what about parking? One of the reasons that uh, many <laughs> that malls took off is there was free parking. There were hundreds of parking spaces. Downtown, I mean, you very rarely even see people who know how to parallel park any longer, but uh, people will complain if they have to even pay more than a dollar or so to park. Well, it, it's very interesting. Um, we had a company, uh, Dirk and Etson, do our, our master plan for our downtown in Lidditz. And one of the things they did was they took a overlay of the mall, Park City Mall in, in Lancaster, and the size of it, and how far people would actually walk in an enclosed space, um, you know, from where they parked. But in an open space such as a downtown, for whatever reason, people, the psychology of shopping and how people move, they need to be directly in front of the shop in which they're planning on going to. Um, you know, I find it very interesting that every community I've worked in, that the people within the community say they have a par par parking problem. And when, in fact, you bring someone in, a specialist, and will do a parking study, often they'll say, you don't have a parking problem, you know? And, um, you know, there is reason you pay meters um, to park. Because in traditional downtown, you have second and third floor apartments and people who actually live there. And if you had free parking, they'd park there all day. So the first floor retail eateries wouldn't have any parking at all. So if, if, if that's meters are parking management, you know, uh, tool. tool, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in, in most places, it's two hours, you know, before you have to run out and replug the meter or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, parking, yeah, a lot of people look at it a different attitude. <laughs> Don't look, so basically what you're advising people is look at it differently. Yes, really. I mean, you know, what's the problem with walking two blocks? It's good for our health. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a phone call now from uh, John in uh, northern Lebanon County. John, you're on the air. Oh, thank you for taking the call. Yes, you're welcome. I, I'm delighted to hear what your what uh, your guest is saying because um, I came from elsewhere also. And uh, I had a rental property in in the north end of town for about 10, 12 years. And I watched that neighborhood change into a pedestrian ethnic community. Um, it, it is a place that is uh, very much a kind of a throwback uh, to 100 years in many ways. And, uh, and the... the that has the, the one ingredient you most uh, speak of, which is people. The people interact with one another, and uh, so I I, I uh, mentioned and and I realized that the uh, this was the result of the very high level of satisfaction uh, that p uh, parents have with the Lebanon school district. Um, 
it doesn't show up in the statistics, but the uh, but family surveys uh, really have an extraordinarily high level for that, and that has attracted a lot of family people from uh, New York and Philadelphia and Reading. Hmm. Uh, so, so not just to just to keep that in mind. All right, John. Thank you very much for your call. But let me go the opposite direction of what John was saying, that uh, there are many cities in uh, Pennsylvania and across the country where school districts aren't doing as well, or at least there is the perception they're not doing well based on test scores and, and that kind of thing. When we're talking about young people and we're talking about the empty nesters, often you're not talking about children for the most part. Uh, Rick Ray, mayor of Lancaster, told me years ago, he said, you know, we get the young, maybe entrepreneurs in the city, but when they move out is when they have kids and they have to go to school. Mm-hmm. Well, quite frankly, I think that that is a huge measure of how your town is doing is when you start seeing the young families coming back. Now, often I know my own daughter... Um, she lived in Lancaster City, and, um, you know, they had to move because of a, a work situation. But um, she was, you know, planning on, I mean, she, you know, uh, my grandson was ready to, to go to kindergarten, and she was, you know, more than ready to send him to the Lancaster School District. Um, this one's a tough one for me because I was a school board member um, for a lot of years, and uh, I am a very strong believer in public education. And when people say public education is failing, public education, from my viewpoint, is just a reflection of our society. So if you're saying public education is failing, then it is society in your area that is failing, and you need to pay attention to that and the other will come along. We have an email. Uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, where uh, she lives, says, we're trying to make uh, build a downtown that's a destination. While we've made significant progress, we seem to be in a stage where we re- what we really need is ideas, support, and residents or businesses who are willing to go downtown. We run into a significant amount of prejudice, sometimes outright racism, and a continuous course of the downtown is a dump and not worth our time. How can a downtown effort move beyond these attitudes, particularly when they are coming from elected officials in addition to residents? Uh, if they're coming from your electric, uh, elected officials, you need to re-elect people. <laughs> um, because if you don't have their backing, that that is that is a very tough battle. Um, and I mean, you can bring them along if if they're you know on the edge. You can you can demonstrate that there are ways of being able to to bring a a town around. Um, a uh, a dire- an executive director of the Westchester BID, um, Malcolm Johnstone. He's sort of like my mentor. And one of the things that he taught me was create your perception, perception and make it your reality. Okay? So those of us that are in this business, we have to look 
at what are the ingredients? You know, what do we have to work with? And and then develop the recipe, so to speak. And again, I'm I'm full of analogies. But um, so once we see what we have to work with, build that perception, sell that perception to everybody, and then make it your reality. Um, back to Lidit and 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 the foodie town thing. I had uh, a young man do a video for for Lidit. And it was a stretch. It was a huge stretch about it being an emerging foodie town. But because of the way the video was, because we already had, you know, we already had a few few of those in there, I was able to take that video and use it as a recruitment tool. I was able to go out and say, hey, you know, we have an emerging foodie town. We already have this kind of foot traffic. Why don't you bring your shop here? You know, and again, when you're when you're starting out, Rents are inexperienced, are, are inexpensive, um, and as, as you know, doing uh, downtown uh, revitalization. One of the things I do is I work very, very closely with SCORE in in Lancaster City. Was assets. There's Community First Fund. These these are all organizations that help with uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, writing business plans. Um, I like seeing somebody with a business plan because by doing the business plan, one, they know that whether their business is feasible or not. Uh, two, they understand the, the level of capitalization that they need to do to start their business. Um, so they're better informed entrepreneur. But, um, you know, young Entrepreneurs, and I don't mean young in age, but young in in business, um, are are a wonderful thing for for downtown. And um, what about the the point that she raised, though? And I have heard this from people who live outside of a city in the suburbs: is oh, I won't go there because their perception is that there's a lot of crime, that uh, and you know maybe there is some racism involved in it as, as well. But what about that perception? You just said that perception, you make it the reality. That's a marketing tool. But if right. you have people who think that this is a dangerous place to go or, oh, I don't want to go there because I hear bad things about it, how do you overcome that? Um, a lot of work. A lot of work. And special events. You start having special events that... And you vary your events, so you're attracting different groups. Um, so you have those events. You have people come down. They have a positive experience. And word of mouth is the best thing in the world. So they have a positive experience, and they tell their neighbor, hey, I went downtown last night and experienced Festival Y. We had a great time. You know, you ought to come the next time. And, I mean... And downtown revitalization is not a light switch. I mean, most downtowns, it has taken them probably at least 50 years to get into that shape. It, at best, is going to take 10 years to get them to a level of, of seeing, you know, major change. Let's take another phone call from Jeremiah in Chambersburg. Jeremiah, you're on the air. Hi, how are you guys doing today? Doing well. Um, I was just trying to talk about, um, it's funny that you mentioned events, because I was going to mention that um, I live in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania here, and uh, I moved here when I was 15, 
And uh, our downtown um, was very drab. There wasn't a lot of businesses. Um, and so it's been about 15 years now. And uh, all the businesses kind of teamed up, and they kind of remodeled all the stores, uh, you know, paint jobs and stuff like that. And so it, it just looks really nice downtown, and they do regular events. Um, like in January, we have what's called Ice Fest, where they do uh, ice sculptures down the whole Main Street, and people can just walk down and look at the ice sculptures. And um, they do regular events like um, in the fall, they do Apple Fest and um, Oktoberfest. And um, even when um, Pokemon Go first came out, um, there was a big Pokemon Go event where I'm talking about hundreds of people just walking up and down Main Street, looking at the businesses, catching Pokemon. Um, it was really great to see so many people out enjoying the town. Well, Jeremiah, I think you're on to something there. Thank you very much for your call. The Pokemon Go thing kind of went away quickly, but uh, he's agreeing with what you're saying is a, a, right. a, a destination. What about history? You know, you, you talked earlier about when you look at the architecture or you look at uh, a city or a downtown with a fresh set of eyes. I, I think what a lot of us are guilty of is not realizing what we have, maybe when it comes to history, but other assets as well. But is, is history one of them? I've always been the proponent that every town has a story to tell, Thank whether you. it's history or, but a lot of times it could be history. Now, not everyone appreciates that, right. but a lot will. Well, you know, Pennsylvania being, you know, uh, established by William Penn uh, was a community, you know, was a state community, whatever, of, of religious freedom. So we see a lot of, like, Afrida, Linnets, whatever, that their history is, is because of religious freedom. I know for Lebanon, um, the more immediate history is, is steel. And, um, in fact, I said that in such a way people might know that I'm from Pittsburgh, another steel town, that all, it all went away. And what do you do when your major industry goes away? But you still have that rich history. And you use that. You use those stories. You, 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 know, you make people proud of where they've been so they can be proud of where they're going. And, and you know... Um, History is, is, is paramount, and everybody, I challenge everybody, when they walk into a traditional downtown, don't look down, don't look straight ahead, look up. Look at all the amazing architecture that, that so many of us just take for granted or don't really see, you know. And, and often, if you do some of the research, some of the, some of the architectures in, in, in our t traditional downtowns are done by famous architects, and and we just kind of take that for granted, and we shouldn't take that for granted. Cause well, I can imagine, Kelly, that uh, your appearance today has excited some people who want to take a fresh look at their downtown or want to add to it a little bit more. Kelly Witham is Executive Director of Lebanon's Neighborhood Improvement District Management Association. Kelly, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for the time. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 20 years ago, PBS rolled out a new program where everyday Americans brought odds and ends to be appraised by experts in art, jewelry, music, and sports memorabilia, and other sometimes arcane 
collectibles. The show was a hit. People started looking at the contents of their homes differently. Reality shows mimicked the premise. What was junk to many people now had meaning when Antiques Roadshow came about. I believe that a conservative number would be between a million and a million five hundred thousand dollars for this group. Serious? I'm serious. Whoa. Well, I won't have to depend on just Social Security, I guess. <laughs> Do you Holy think that God. changes things a little? Wow. You were pursued something you love. You weren't worried about the money. I'd rather was the collect thing. something like this than eat. <laughs> serious? I'm, I'm serious as I can be. <laughs> I need an inhaler and I don't even have asthma. Now, that's the reaction that a lot of people from central Pennsylvania hope to have when Antiques Roadshow visits Harrisburg on June 3rd to record episodes that will air on PBS. In an area with the kind of history that central Pennsylvania has and also considered a hotbed for antiques, some fascinating pieces will surface. Joining us to talk about Antiques Roadshow and what goes on behind the scenes is Marsha Bemko, executive producer of the program. Marsha, welcome to the program. Good morning. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And no, Marsha cannot give an appraisal out over the radio. But, uh, Marsha, thank you very much for joining us today. You know, I have to say that uh, we here at the station are very excited about Antiques Roadshow coming to central Pennsylvania. And this is probably the first that many people are hearing about it, so I'm sure they're excited about it as well. How do you decide on the places where you're going to go? You know, I, I like to joke we throw darts. <laughs> and it's a really small country. When you, find, when you work at Antiques Roadshow, it's a small country. Um, but we decide where to go based on the venue. Can, where, where in your area can we do the, the show? And then it's all about when was the last time we were in your neighborhood? And we like to leave a minimum of five cities between uh, five cities, five years, five years is better, uh, five years between a visit to a city, because we know after doing this show, it's actually we're we're getting ready to record season 22, believe it or not, uh, that if if we go back earlier than that, we sort of. Uh, fleshed out the good antiques. We need time for, for things to build back up before we come in again. Do you, when you are looking, okay, now you were talking about uh, the time between and whether there's a location where you can do it. Do you also take into consideration an area's history or, you know, how many uh, antique collectors or antiques there possibly or potentially could be around in that area? You know, I would like to make you feel better at Harrisburg, all of you listening out there, because we're going to see some wonderful things while we're in your area of the country. But we also go to places like Las Vegas. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, we, really, we really don't think like that. When we give out our tickets right now, what's happening is people in your area are registering for tickets. If you live within 50 miles, by the, or you can live wherever you want if you want to get yourself there. But if you also can send us furniture photos, uh, if you live within 50 miles, and we're going to move some furniture. But people are applying right now for tickets. And what happens is, is from this applicant of, of ticket holders, you know, t- uh, ticket applicants, we're going to select 3,000 pairs of tickets. Now I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes thing here. As of last Wednesday, because that's the day the team who runs the digital side here, 
tells us where we are with ticketing. Guess how many people registered for tickets in Harrisburg so far? And the ticketing deadline's April 10th, so we're going to get more. Okay, you're going to make me guess. I just give one guess. Okay, I'm going to say 2,000. Right now, as of last Wednesday, so it's well over 13,000 now, as of last Wednesday, 12,811 people had applied for those 3,000 pairs of tickets that we give out to the public. I said 2,000, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. Your your station will pledge them, too, so there'll be a chance for people to get tickets like that as well. Um, but um, but more people want to come than we can see. So we are very trying to be very fair and plot ourselves around the country and, and take turns. Well, you mentioned uh, pledging. Actually, the show obviously is on Monday night at 8 and is, uh, has the biggest audience on PBS, and we will be pledging tonight. So uh, if if you have – I'm just talking to the audience. If uh, you would like to attend uh, Antique Roadshow and uh, maybe you have some uh, a few items that you'd like to show, have appraised, then there's a possibility of uh, getting some tickets tonight. Tune in WITF-TV at uh, 8 o'clock tonight. And uh, you can learn more at that time. So you gave us a little behind the scenes, but give us a little bit more. If those, you know, who are listening now do are fortunate enough to get those tickets, uh, what can they expect? Well, they can expect that each ticket holder will bring two objects. And they can expect that, you know, unless it's something really odd, that we will tell you about what you bring. And listen, the odds are they can expect that, unlike that in that clip that you heard, I know exactly what that object that is that you played. 1700s uh, rhino horns. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you were to appraise those today, they'd be worth less than half of that because the antiques are tricky. Um, but most people don't own that kind of thing. That's really rare and valuable objects. So they can expect they're going to learn the history of their objects. We often enlighten, some, enlighten somebody. We answer questions. People come in and they wonder, was this made in Connecticut or in North Carolina? Because I'm trying to figure out which side of the family it came from. Um, and then some lucky folks will be just like that man we just heard and learn a stunning details about their object that makes it more valuable than they ever imagined. Lucky them. <laughs> yeah, really. Has, let me ask you this. I'm not going to, I don't know if I, a yes, no answer is right here or not, but I'll, I'll ask it this way. Uh, it's been our experience because we've had antique dealers on the air before, and I've asked them this question, but I'm curious on a national scale like your show, uh, whether people tend to overvalue what they have, that uh, it's been a family heirloom, it's been in the family for 100 years, it must be worth a lot of money. I don't know what your other folks said on the show, but I am going to say hands down, always yes. Is that what they said, <laughs> Yes, <Joe>? yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> always yes, because people, first of all, grandma told them, or great-great-grandma told don't ever give this away, it's the most valuable, whatever it is, and they, and they believe it. Um, and sometimes it's right, but it's a very personal thing. When you, what's so fascinating, what I, I'll never get tired of watching for as long as I produce this show, and I've been doing it for a while now, is how connected, especially family objects, people really feel about what they've brought to us. And they are so certain sometimes that we're wrong, that it's, it's a common object, it's just special to you, 
It's, you know, and that can't, we can't value that, but in the market, it's only going to bring $500. We've actually had people question whether or not we're right. So, you know what I say then? Go get a different opinion, and then they'll find out that we were right. But, <laughs> you know, I have to admit, uh, people really do believe that what they have is worth a lot because it means so much to them. I have to admit that even though I have seen people on Antiques Roadshow who are disappointed, but I, I can't ever remember seeing anyone who was downright angry. Have you ever had anyone like that? Yeah, we have a couple of stories of people who were angry with us who, who really felt we got it wrong. And um, I'll tell you one little funny story. I won't say what city it was because I don't want to give away the guess. This aired, and I won't say exactly what the object is, but it's a, it's a, it's a jewel. And I ask her if I can hold the jewel for a minute. I want to take it over to um, one of the appraisers has a jewel tester so we can find out whether it's glass or it's a jewel. And we test it in its glass. This, this, this thing's going to be worth like $50. So she discovers that on the air, and then afterwards she came over and accused me and asked me if I swapped that with one I had in my pocket. So I just said, oh, no, I, I don't have things that look exactly what you have, like carrying around with me here all day. But she was so convinced that what she had was right that somehow or other it was different. <laughs> all right. See, now, a rumor could start that you have all kinds of objects that look like other things, and you swap them out from time to time. That only happened once, but it is kind of interesting. But that's how attached people are to their stuff. They, they imagine things that couldn't possibly be. <laughs> what, was, what was the item that was appraised at the most, the, the thing that had the most valuable, valuable since you've been uh, producing the show? You played it. And that, oh, that was, was what we found in it? Tulsa was the five rhinoceros horn cups. I mean, I, you know, some, I have thousands of appraisals in my head, but that one, all I have to hear is a few notes, and I know what it is. And um, that was, was the five rhinoceros horn cups that that guest had spent time collecting and buying and loved these things. By the way, most collectors love what they do. They're not buying to make money. And um, we valued them that day at one, one and a half million dollars. Now, keep in mind, we recorded, I don't remember which summer month we recorded it, June, July, or August, but in, and we air what we record in the summer, just like we will this summer when we're in your city, we start, begin airing those shows in January. And lo and behold, in November, the laws changed, so that by the time we aired the rhinoceros horn cups, they were worth, had a different value than when we recorded them. Uh, They're much harder to sell now, and that really devalues them. You know, I have to admit that when I did hear that, I, I thought, okay, don't they have laws against that? But uh, well, They do, and a lot of people who just don't like the idea of it, and I won't, not mind to get into the politics right, of, right. but you're not, you, if you like that kind of thing, you're going to pay a lot less now. But be careful, don't transport them over state lines and all the other laws I couldn't begin to dive into. <laughs> well, and I, and I again, remembering uh, some of the background on that case was that gentleman uh, spent like five thousand dollars and then got that kind of appraisal so mm -hmm. you know you can understand yep. why he was shocked he was shocked and frankly you know when you if you're going to ask me what of a few of my favorite things that's not going to be in the list of them i like things that sparkle like diamonds and stuff so stunning to most of us you just most of us look at that and say you are kidding 
Well, but yeah, talk about that. I mean, one it, man's ceiling is another man's floor, right? Right, exactly. But <laughs> but but some of the favorites that not only you have had, but the the audience as well, because I'm sure that you get audience reaction. Uh, you know, some of the people, some of the, the uh, items that they've brought in, the pieces they brought in. What are some of those? You know, it's funny that you you become after you become a very jaded person. You know, what's that? A vase? It's only worth three thousand dollars. Well, I don't know about all you out there, but I don't have any vases worth three thousand dollars. <laughs> so you you get to be a jaded road roadshow producer, and I'll admit that's what I am now. <laughs> but I um, but my favorite object from last summer, and we just were editing this episode. It hasn't aired yet, and it's coming up in Orlando, which airs it's in Orlando two. I want to say which airs May twenty second. And um, it's my favorite, one of my favorite things from the summer, and it's a peach can label. And it's uh, a peach can label that a soldier in 1918 wrote from the trenches about how much he was enjoying those peaches. And he sent it to the owner of the company, and he signed that thing. These peaches are worth fighting for. And that label is worth 400 to $600, I want to remember. I should check these things while I'm talking to you. And it's just a great story. So you finally get to be a geek, like I am, like all those appraisers are, where you just love the thing. It doesn't matter what it's worth in the story. It just becomes so priceless. You know, it's so, yeah, you do turn into that, although I do still covet diamonds, and I'll admit that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're a girl's best friend. You know, I don't know whether you can say that nowadays or not. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, I still like them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what you said earlier about, uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like in the eye of the beholder. And something that, that you also said that uh, struck me is that most people don't collect to sell. Although, I will, and maybe it's because of shows like Antique Roadshow or eBay coming along, at least I know I do this, that when I get something that is is older or has been handed down, I check to see what it's worth. Try to find out online uh, what it's worth. Not that I have intentions of selling it, but still, it almost feels like, oh, I always have this in my back pocket, even though that item is only worth $50. I think you speak for so many, including me. And when I can't find it and I can't Google it and I can't figure out what it is, luckily, I have the phone numbers of 150 appraisers yeah, in my phone. See, so lucky advantage. me, yeah. I can find out. <laughs> but um, I think it is the thrill of the hunt when we find something. I know when I buy, I buy because I like something. And then I'm hoping I have a good deal. And if I'm really lucky, I'm hoping I stumbled into something that is worth a lot of money. And I won't have an emotional attachment to it, so therefore I will sell it. You know, most of what we see on Roadshow, or a lot, I haven't done anything scientific, is inherited. And people, no matter what we tell them, no matter what the value, they're not going to sell it. It's been in the family for sometimes generations, and once you sell it, no matter what you get for it, you, you can't buy it back, you can't ever have it yeah. again. So people don't let go of it. Well, I, I know, again, after listening to this today, we're even more excited. Uh, Antiques Roadshow coming to Harrisburg to record episodes on June 3rd. We are pledging Antiques Roadshow tonight. It's on at 8 o'clock on uh, WITF-TV. Marsha Bemko is the executive producer of Antiques Roadshow. Marsha, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Can I give a little pitch for the pledge ticket? Sure. Because, you know, we do this in every city we visit. Every station does exactly what your station's doing, and they pledge the tickets. Those tickets have some little extra privileges with them. 
Anytime tickets and other things that they'll explain to you tonight. So worth your pledge and worth supporting the station and Antiques Roadshow. Marcia, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. See you all soon. Okay. Thank you very much.